0: Oh Lord, we thank You for this day that You have made. We rejoice and are glad in it this morning. We thank You that we, Your people, have every reason to give You the praise that You so deserve. We only lack, Lord Jesus, the strength and energy and the words and the breadth, Lord, of, and wealth of information with which to offer You that which You are so worthy. But we thank You, Lord, that we don't have to look inside ourselves to find Some gift worthy of offering, but instead, which you have given to us, we offer back, Lord Jesus. We give unto you, Lord Jesus, our life that you have redeemed and that you have regenerated. We offer ourselves this morning a living sacrifice to you, which is our reasonable service. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have done a mighty work in our lives and in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would change us and conform us by the ministry of your word this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts to appreciate and to comprehend the great riches of your gospel. I pray that you would stir our hearts to apply your holy word. I pray that as the day approaches, you would find us, your church, drawing near boldly and confidently through Jesus, our high priest, holding fast, Lord Jesus, without turning to the right or left or wavering with confidence, our confession of faith. And Father, finally, that we would stir one another up to love and good works. Teach us these things, we pray, from your Scriptures. Holy Spirit, we trust it is you who enable this time, Lord, to be effective, to be here. We thank you that you give us a great privilege, Father, of meeting together, Lord, to consider your Scriptures. The grass, grass withers and fades, but they will never fail. So I pray we, as we turn our attention to them today, That you would conform us unto your image through the ministry of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Praise the Lord. What a great gift and opportunity it is to open the scriptures together today. I would encourage you to do so with me this morning by turning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 9 through 13 will be our primary text today. And this is something of a companion message for our outreach service that we had on December 4th. December 4th, I did a brief message on five of the most power-packed verses in all of Scripture, in my opinion. That would be Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which we'll reference several times today. That's the passage where the author, Paul, goes into great detail in... Not a great quantity of words, but the depth and breadth of theology are just absolutely incredible as he exalts the Lord, as he exalts Jesus and his glory that he retains now and that he retained even before the incarnation. And so today I thought a companion message would be the prayer that could be the prayer that precedes that text, which appears in verses 9 through 13. Today's message is titled Saints in Light and this comes from our text today as well in verse 12 giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light so I trust this morning we'll have a better idea of what these things mean as the spirit opens our hearts to comprehend his scriptures so if you have your Bible open to Colossians 1 would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's word and let us cover these verses Together, So stand with me if you would. Now we'll read our text today. Colossians 1 verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, The forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Paul's prayer here in the context of the Colossian prologue, if you will, explores and applies the glorious transformational possibilities for believers predicated on the glory of Christ. That is to say, because Christ is so powerful and glorious in the sum of His being and character and work, the glory that He retained in His pre-incarnate eternal sonship before He entered into His creation, the further glory, if it can be said, that He secured in His work in incarnation, is so great, is such a manifestly powerful reality in the life of a believer, that it has profound transformational possibilities and effects for believers. Paul is, this is, Paul is not unfamiliar with this way of speaking or orienting either a prayer or an application point in his epistles. His want often to open with a lengthy and weighty piece of theology that expounds in depth and transcendent detail the power and glory of God, and then he will move to application. I find this so powerful because after thinking about and meditating on and considering the glory of God, and that he entered creation, for instance, moved heaven and earth to accomplish his great will, fulfilled every last prophecy down to the jot and tittle recorded in the Old Testament through the one perfect, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, suddenly perspective is brought to bear on our calling as Christians. It seems easier to comprehend success in standing in our in standing firm in our faith for example or walking in a manner as Paul often says worthy of the Lord. This is the idea of the of our text even today our recent message I mentioned briefly in introduction from these verses or uh was from verses 15 through 20 where Paul magnifies the glory of Christ, astounding the reader with the range of Christ's pedigree from His pre-incarnate glory to His glory secured by incarnation. He is, verse 15, Paul goes on past our passage today to describe, He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. With language like this, it seems that anything lesser is possible, does it not? Does God have the power to sanctify you or I? Well, it seems ridiculous to deny His power to do so or anything else for that matter when we see His power manifest in creation itself and we see it manifest in new creation further as the book goes on to declare. In these verses that I just read to you, the Apostle magnifies the glory of God. He brings us to our knees in adoration when our hearts are trained to realize the great value of the word and the truth that he proclaims. His prayers thus for the church are based upon these affirmations. They are themselves, it could be said, then in one sense, a study in the transformational power, in this context, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. One might wonder why Paul can pray and admonish so confidently in his epistles. Think of it. The church was just getting started, if you will. This was the beginning of the Christian era as we know it. The first wave of apostolic truth was going forward in the known world just with a couple here or there. Faced with persecution, fraught with all kinds of obstacles at every turn. And a small church would often have infighting, not to mention the problems from without. And the journey to get there was over, you know, land and sea and shipwreck and peril sword robbers and so on Paul often, Paul often described would impair the way of any missionary who would go who could go and encourage the churches. Many times a letter like this would take months if not years to reach its intended destination. So it stand, so the question becomes even more profound. Under these conditions How could Paul so boldly and so confidently pray and admonish the church along the lines of our text today? He's greatly encouraged as he writes. He said in chapter 1, verse 3, we always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Our text today, verse 9, and so when the day We heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Are these not first generation Christians with no Hebrew background, called out of a secular pagan world, with nothing really to work with in their understanding? How could Paul be so bold and confident in his expectations for this church? Well, our answer today comes with the perspective point that this question, the perspective point, point that answers this question is because Paul's prayers and his uh, admonitions are always based on the superior power of Christ, his word, and his gospel. Paul personally knew that tough cases were no match for the Lord. After all, he, the most rabidly opposed to the gospel of God, a Pharisee of Pharisees seeking to stamp out the early work of Christ. His heart had been miraculously transformed by the same power of which he now speaks. He is mindful of this as he writes. And so he brings a great encouragement to the church. And this ought to be a great source of encouragement for us. Paul knew that tough cases were no match for the Lord. He's mindful of this in the context of this church. And today's message will be a brief exposition of Paul's prayer for the saints in Colossae. It's also a fitting prayer for you and I, if you're in him today. And also this morning, after these, this brief expo- exposition, we'll close with a sample documenting of the testament or the testimony of the inheritance of the saints in life through redemptive history. So let me give you a brief structure For the remainder of my message today. Under this heading. Three themes outlining Paul's prayer. For believers. Number one. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. Number two. Be strengthened with all power. Number three. Be thankful for the inheritance. Of the saints in light. And then we'll spend a little extra time. As we close this morning. With a historical overview. To give us an idea of what Paul refers to. When he uses language like inheritance of the saints in light and being transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son from the domain of darkness, light and darkness, inheritance, and so on, figure into the descriptive language. Beginning in verse 9 and 10, let us consider this theme, be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is Paul's prayer for the church. Again, our verses today read, verse 9 and 10, And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. A great prayer for us today great prayer for this new year as it approaches on our culturally as we turn a leaf on our calendar as that we would be filled with the knowledge of the lord's will but notice as paul expounds on the content what is the content of god's will that paul has in mind as he says this is it some mystical understanding for my own personal life like a person that i need to be involved with in some way a relationship a particular destination a career path vocation or is it something else? The content of that Paul is referring to is the spiritual wisdom and understanding that is gleaned through the Scriptures. He says, "...and so from the day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding." The context of the book allows us to fill in what Paul exactly means here. What kind of spiritual wisdom and understanding do you mean, Paul? Is there an example you could give us? Well, how about the verses that I read earlier? Is this not spiritual wisdom and understanding? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, or later in our passage that we covered recently, verse 18, He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, that in everything... He might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To be filled with the with full knowledge, or to be filled with the knowledge of his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, is to be filled with the knowledge of Christ. For in him, says in verse nineteen, is the fullness of God. Verse twenty and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. It is these spiritual wise sayings, it is these understandings and truths to which Paul focused the attention of the Colossian church so that they might understand the will of the Lord, that they might be filled with the knowledge of His intent. Later in the text, there are these times when Paul again alludes (coughs) to knowledge. He says, for instance, in chapter 2, as we turn over to verses uh, 2 and 3, says that their hearts may be encouraged, may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Listen. Listen. In whom are hidden all the treasure, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there we have it again. The totality of the focus and the desire and the nature and that which we are to pursue and to imbibe and to consider and to behold and to love and to pursue with disciplined fervor is entirely hidden in Christ. If we pursue Christ, we pursue everything worth pursuing. We pursue the knowledge of God's will. We pursue all things that apply uh, to that truth as well. Paul also says in the same chapter, chapter 2, verse (coughs) 9, For in Him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority? In him also you were circumcised, with the circumcision made with hand, without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were all also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. He goes on to describe some of the glories of salvation pictured and baptism and fulfilled in Christ. So this is the content of the knowledge of God's will, to which Paul turns the attention of the Colossian Church. He seeks to anyway in his prayer, that is his deep desire. Second question is what is the aim? What is the purpose of this knowledge quest? Well that is clear in verse ten of our text. So as to walk, that is, be filled with all the spiritual wisdom and understanding, so As to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the purpose of this quest is that we might capitalize on the transformational possibilities of the gospel and it has a practical outworking effect in our lives. We begin, as the book of Ephesians also echoes, to walk in a manner worthy of our call. We become more and more pleasing to the Lord in our pursuits, and our actions. Our life changes to bear fruit according to the gospel. We become conformed to the image of the truth of God's scripture to the extent, in Paul's prayer, that it affects every single one of our works, our efforts, is to be reformed. The power of the gospel is to touch every aspect of our lives. The application of this is clear also with more specifics later in the book. In chapter 3, for instance, verse 18-20, through Paul often speaks this way as he is giving practical advice to the churches. He says in 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So these two instructions, these two imperatives are an example of a manner worthy of walk, or of, of walking uh, uh, in a manner worthy of the Lord, and being pleasing to Him, and abounding in fruitful good works. goes on to describe more family relationships. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So children are enabled, in the context of the Scriptures proclaimed and expanded to them and through their parents' instructions and so on to be changed as well. <clears throat> their behavior becomes more in keeping with that which God requires. Even slaves begin to obey in everything those who are their earthly masters, verse 22, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So this is an example of Paul's application, and effect of the knowledge that we gain through the gospel. The knowledge that we gain will work its way out <coughs> to affect our daily walk, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord more pleasing to Him, and fruit-bearing in every good work. Finally, an increasing in the knowledge of God. And in this last phrase, we see that there is a working together, a sort of synergy, if you will, of knowledge and action. Some have wrongfully tried to create a dichotomy between scriptural uh, doctrine, the knowledge of the truth, and practical living. Uh, Some may lean more one way than the other. or Some might think that an emphasis on the one is to the detriment of the other. This is not Paul's thinking at all. For Paul, an emphasis on the doctrinal truth of the gospel and the scriptures will necessarily lead to right action. And then that right action, he goes on to say, will work itself out with an increase in the knowledge of God. A sort of snowball effect of godliness where our understanding of the gospel affects our outworking of it, which encourages us to have more understanding of the gospel, which affects us in more and more areas of life. and In so doing, we become an answer to Paul's prayer for the church to be filled with the knowledge of his will. The second theme outlining Paul's prayer for believers is to be strengthened with all power. Verse 11, Paul prays, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Of course, there is a grounding statement here as well. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. On the basis of something, may you be strong, immovable, steadfast, unhindered, and unshaken and your commitment to the Lord. And what is the basis then. Of the strength of which Paul speaks. Is it a personal resolution. A doubling down on your self-awareness. And esteem and just personal resolve. That I am going to make a decision. And I am going to be very strong-willed in my personality. And grit my teeth and endure. No, this is not the ground of the strength to which Paul refers He's not appealing to some innate source within us. Paul never does this. In fact, he knows that everything within us, like within him, is wicked in and of itself. Only that which is in us from Christ is worthy of note. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience, and joy. It is an alien strength. It is a strength not our own. It is a strength that is granted to us From the outside, if you will. It is a strength that comes from the one who is powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. We mentioned in my message prior on this text, verses 15 through 20, that Paul is laboring to show the sovereignty of God in creation, sovereignty of Christ over creation, Also that he is the agent of creation, the sustainer of creation, and the sovereign of creation. Paul demonstrates that Christ is the sovereign of creation when he shows that he, in four categories, rules and reigns over it all. He says that Christ is superior to any other dominion, ruler, authority, and throne. And when he mentions this, he exalts Christ in the minds of the hearers to where He he actually is, which is seated at the right hand of the Father, having received the kingdom from the ancient of days, placing now every one of His enemies under His feet, having absolute authority over everything. This is the strength to which Paul appeals when he prays. Be strengthened with all power. May you be strengthened with all power according to what? His glorious might, the glorious might of Christ, demonstrated in His creating, sustaining, and governing all the universe. Powerful indeed. <clears throat> be strengthened with all power. What for? Secondly, under, being, under our second point, there is an endurance that is necessary. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious not, might, for something for all endurance and patience with joy. There is a calling in the Christian life to suffer for the Lord's sake. Paul says as much in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, To make the word of God fully known. If we join in part and in principle. In Paul's call to make the word of God known. Through our lives. There is a call to endurance that applies to us as well. It is difficult to stand on the word and for the word. In a day where its foundations are challenged at every turn. We are mocked and derided. For where we stand as Christians. Not only and you know, with some uh, private religion that we hold one day a week. But for those who are so bold as to actually be Christians, the way Paul describes, it is becoming more and more countercultural cor- cultural in our secular day. We, therefore, have need of endurance, like Paul did, and like the church in Colossae, no doubt, did. The church in Colossae was no stranger to an environment of paganism. They needed to realize that if the strength that they could avail themselves of, what came from the power of the one who sustained the universe, that, that, that the endurance that they could glean from that source would lead them through any temporal sufferings that they could that foresee or have to endure on account of Christ's name. That source was sufficient and then some. It would always be the case. It was the case for Paul, it would be the case for the church. <coughs> and praise the Lord, it is the case for us. Finally, under be strengthened with all power, the uh, last phrase of note is patience with joy. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. For all endurance and patience with joy and the idea here is that there are things that are anticipated at every era of God's redemptive plan until its full manifest fulfillment the full eschatology of God's intentions has come to fruition we are not in heaven yet we are not in the new heavens and the new earth yet there are things that we still wait for but when we consider the source of our endurance, we can wait with patience and with joy. We can wait for the Lord to answer our prayers. We can wait for the Lord's return with joy. We can wait for His unfolding plan in our own lives to be revealed in due course with patience and with joy. We can wait for the salvation of the Lord to visit the homes Of our loved ones perhaps that we're reaching out to. And it's so difficult to maintain faith and patience for. We can wait with patience and joy. We can wait navigating life's trials with patience and joy. If we avail ourselves of the source of strength listed here. Finally this morning the third theme outlining Paul's prayer for believers. Is to be thankful for the inheritance of the saints in life. He closes his beautiful prayer in a sort of doxological manner, that is a kind of poetic, worshipful way, in verses 12 and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of, in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His son, beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First of all, consider the qualifications of those who will share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Who qualifies? Those who submit their resume and, after careful scrutiny, a committee uh, determines, based on grading on a curve, that they measure up. No, it is the Lord. It is the Father Himself. Who qualifies anyone to receive the inheritance of the saints of light? We give thanks in fact to the Father who has qualified you, speaking to the Colossae Church, he has qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints uh, the inheritance of the saints in light. There is a sovereign simplicity of the epistles in view at this point. There's no confusion of categories in Paul's mind. Paul has lobbied for and he has called for it, even in this prayer for diligent uh, fruit bearing and for good works. He is calling the church to be diligent, to be uh, mindful, to be zealous about the will of the Lord, pursuing it by walking in a manner worthy of Him, bearing fruit in keeping with every good work and so on, but there's no confusion of categories here. Paul, Paul understands that the equipping and enabling to do so is fruit of the, of the work that God has already done in our hearts when He, by a, so, by a work of sovereign grace alone, has qualified us for the inheritance of salvation. And this is the sovereignty in view here in Paul's soteriology or Paul's doctrine of salvation. Next we have, in this section, the qualifying process. Well, if it is the Father that qualifies us, how has He done so? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. The Father, having rescued us, regenerated us, having delivered us, from the domain of darkness, from the judgment that our sin deserved, from the cloud of evil thinking that invariably and inescapably plagues the unregenerate believer. God, having drawn us out, delivered us, delivering us from these chains, the domain of darkness, has in so do, doing qualified us for the inheritance. Not only has, has He removed That from us, expiated, taken away our sin and the wickedness that plagued us and that was endemic to our nature. After all, as we read in other portions, all having sinned and falling short of the glory of God are worthy of death. He has then done something positive, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, removed the darkness from us, removed us from the darkness, and then placed us in the kingdom of His beloved Son, under the domain, the rule, the favor, the blessings and benefits of the rule and the authority and the glorious reign of Jesus Christ. There was a day in ancient Israel that was something of a golden age, in Solomon's era, where other nations would stream up to the hill of the Lord as it were, to hear of the great wisdom there contained, and to see for themselves, remember the queen of Sheba, the great riches and the acquisition of wealth and wisdom that Solomon, by God's grace, was able to accumulate. And it was quite the spectacle. The whole world, known world, so to speak, was interested in this. Now, this uh, glory faded. It waned. It was never reclaimed. Until another king came. There were foreign dignitaries that came. And we'll touch upon a verse or two. Later in today's message. That tell us. <coughs> that the true son of David. Was now ruling and reigning. And if you thought the influence. The power. And the glory. And the majesty. The benefit. The inheritance. The overflowing blessings. Of being a citizen of the kingdom of Solomon would have been something to behold? It pales in comparison and it's just a material picture and could only scratch the surface in one typological way of what is available in overflow and benefit and blessing in riches and inheritance of those who are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is the message of Paul's words. Greatly encouraging words indeed. What does Paul mean (coughs) by these words exactly? When he employs terms like darkness and light and inheritance, he says again, giving you or uh, qualifying you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. I'd like to close this morning by giving you something of a historical overview to fill in some of the redemptive history behind the language that Paul uses right here. You see, the term light is uh, specifically employed in Scripture. It has meaning that can probably only be fully appreciated when we do something of a word study and see its use throughout the text. But light itself, the term, and the idea and the concept, becomes a favorite tool, if you will, in God's revelatory lexicon for His unfolding, glorious, and powerful purposes in redemptive history to proclaim Himself and His salvation. You see, Paul says in verse 14, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption, The forgiveness of sins. Redemption and the forgiveness of sins speaks to the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. Paul refers to this as the fulfillment of all that is referred to in the past. Or had been prophesied of in the past. And associated with the light of God that would dawn upon the people at the fullness of time. And would deliver them from darkness. Usher them into a kingdom of an entirely different order, the kingdom of his beloved Son, the Son of whom uh, John referred to in the opening of his gospel as the one who is full of light and truth, and or grace and truth. And you can see the concept of light associated with Christ all through John's use there. So again, <coughs> light, therefore, becomes this a favorite tool or way of describing. Uh, the expectations for the unfolding, glorious, and powerful purposes in redemptive history as the Lord proclaims Himself and His salvation. So let me document for you a testimony of the inheritance of the saints in light through redemptive history. You don't need to turn to all these passages necessarily, but I want to give you an overview that hopefully will supply some context and build your faith. For the truth that is behind the words that we read today. First of all, you'll be familiar with many of these. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. Let us note that the first testimony to the Word of God and the Spirit's work in creation was light filling the formless void. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis one, one through five. Marching through the scriptures, I move us to Exodus chapter thirteen this morning. Secondly, we see light, the use of light guiding the Exodus or guiding the way of Exodus. Exodus thirteen, twenty-one through twenty-two. The history of God's people finds them leaving Egypt. Sovereignly directed by God's hand into the promised land. And he does so miraculously. The Lord went before them, verse 21. By day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. We have light testifying to the word of God, the origin of all material things at creation. We have light guiding the people out of bondage into the promised land in Exodus 13. We have the lightnings and fire of Sinai that are revealed at the giving of the law in Exodus 19. Verses 16 through 20, for instance, again the Lord revealing Himself. On the morning of the third day there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the Lord and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. You'll recall also. Though we won't touch any verses this morning. The ubiquitous use of light. In tabernacle worship. You'll also recount. In Nehemiah 9. That during the reconstitution. Of Israel. Where repentance and reformation. Were taking place. That these passages. to Which I just referred. Were, re- were uh, reinstated. To focus the people's attention on God's work among them as they repented of their waywardness and recovenanted themselves to the Lord, light and creation, light guiding the way of Exodus. Thirdly, we have light. Uh, we have light in the uh, beaming mediator, if you will, Exodus thirty-four. Again, it is significant. Moses' office. An agency, and also different things that attend his way, that are typological of Christ. And this is one of them in Exodus 34:29. When Moses came down the mount, uh, down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to them, and Moses talked with them. After all the people of Israel came near, he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. This, of course, corresponds to the moment of transfiguration that we read of later in Matthew 17. Who is the shining one in that picture? Is it Moses? No, the fading glory of Moses gives way to the internal glory of Christ. And the beaming mediator, the true go-between, the true prophet, priest, and king between us and the Lord is revealed in Christ as He is transfigured. Before the disciples. Fourthly, we have light figuring into David's last words and his reminding himself of the covenant that God has made with him. We find this in 2 Samuel. As David writes glorious poetry all throughout the Psalms, references to light with respect to the revelation of the Lord, his salvation and so on, are too numerous to note this morning. But here's a one example in a Second Samuel of David's own last words. The final legacy of the great king, as David is finding focus and priority in his final days and final breaths on this earth, he confesses the following. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, listen, verse 4, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. And he goes on. And so David exalts the Lord in his final days, remembering his covenant and describing the Lord's work in his life like the dawning of the morning sun. So we have light in creation, guiding the way of Exodus, the beaming mediator, David's last words in covenant. Fifthly, prophecies of new covenant fullness. Turn to Isaiah if you are following with me today. These are familiar seasonal texts. In Isaiah chapter 9, we begin to see the forward-looking specifics in the prophets to the Messiah who would come. And again, light is employed (coughs) to draw our attention to God's work in history unfolding. It says in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. He goes on to say, identifying this light in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Later in the book, Isaiah 60, again the prophet uses similar language when he says, Arise, shine, verse 1, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and a thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. All nations shall come to your light. And the kings to the brightness of your rising. He says lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather. They come to you. Your sons from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And they shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. And listen, verse 6, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And our last category this morning of light in Scripture is the proclamation of glorious fulfillment. We've seen how light is used in creation account, guiding the way of Exodus, the beaming mediator, David's last words in covenant. Prophecies of New Covenant fulfillment. And finally, in the New Testament itself, we see proclamation of glorious fulfillment over and over again. I am giving you the record, the documentation, of the inheritance of the saints in light, if you will. God In Luke chapter 1, our first example this morning. Zechariah. His uh, faithless tongue has been loosed. As you recall, for some time he could not speak because he doubted the prophecy that his wife would conceive. Zechariah would be the father of John the Baptist. After his tongue was loosed, the first things out of his mouth were glorious prophecy. Not only did he assent to the truth of what the angel brought him, but he built upon this, upon this by declaring God's glory and the meaning of of both John the Baptist, the arrival of both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And he closes his prophecy by saying, verse 78, <coughs> back up to 76, <coughs> New child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. And verse 78, Because of the tender mercy "...of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high." This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 60. "...to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death." This is the transfer of the from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light that is possible now because of the Incarnation, because God has brought salvation to us in Christ preceded by John the Baptist, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He was not the only one to prophesy along these lines. The great, Simeon, the great prophecy of Simeon, the one who was waiting in the temple for the consolation of Israel in the next chapter Rejoice to see the babe Christ as he was presented in the temple. It says, and he came in the spirit to the temple, speaking of Simeon, verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes has seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. and what is this? How does he describe this? Verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. This man knew, and staring into the eyes of this child, that through him would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He was not the only one privy to this knowledge, not just Zechariah, not just Simeon, but we go on in the account by two references, uh, to note two references in Matthew. The first one in chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, the fulfillment of many of these passages, like Isaiah 60 and so on, is specifically referenced in this event. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice, for we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. There is a heavenly light, a celestial body in the sky, that is guiding Gentiles to the king of kings. And so they follow. Now the prophecy comes that he would be born in Bethlehem. They have this meeting with Herod. They hear instructions in a dream and so on. After listening to the king, in verse 9, they, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, a direct fulfillment of Isaiah sixty. Kings from or, uh, uh, dignitaries from distant kingdoms under any other circumstance, it would be called treason, came to offer honor and worship to the king of kings. They fell down before the child, offered him these expensive gifts, and they worshipped him, declared unto him their allegiance, and they were led there by a light in the heavens. Final verse, or section in Matthew 4, Jesus himself affirms all of these prophecies in his work and ministry and in, his, and in the message of the kingdom. And One example is Matthew 4.12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun. And the land of Naphtali. The way by the sea. Beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness. Have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region. And the shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. From that time. Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is some of the redemptive historical context behind our text today. You might wonder how the simple gospel preached in a wayward corner of the pagan world had such a profound effect. It was because everything that I just read to you Was fulfilled in Christ. The word of God correctly spoken. Has power to awaken the dead soul. Unto revelatory light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. To transform our affections. To resurrect us unto newness of life. And to give us all things pertaining to life and godliness. This is our inheritance. saints. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is our inheritance. That which was documented, promised. That which was carefully laid out and fulfilled and perfect and final detail is ours in Christ. We share in the inheritance of the saints in light if we are believers this day. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We once were blind, and now we see. We once were lost, and now we are found. Upon us, the sunrise of God's salvation has arisen, illuminating His purposes in history to ransom for Himself a people from every tribe and nation. And in Him, we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Praise His holy name. Let's pray. O Father, we thank You for the great riches of the inheritance that we have in You. I pray today as we've touched on many points in Your great Scriptures that You would take them from the pages and write them upon our hearts. May they conform us as Paul prayed for this church or to walk in a manner that is worthy of You. Lord, I pray that you would continue to encourage and strengthen us not only to endure but also unto fruitfulness as these words also describe. Lord, I pray that we would set our mind and our attention if we lack, Lord's zeal and if we see the waywardness of sin encroaching in our lives, our thoughts, our desires again. I pray that we would return in our meditations to the greatness of our God, Lord, lay down in these immortal words and that we would find in them a refuge and of eternal joy and strength so that we may never waver in our call to honor you and serve you until the day you call us home or when you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.